Chapter Six, Part Two of Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, Part Two. It has already been stated that Thoreau's sympathies were enlisted from his earliest manhood in the cause of abolition and that he was himself instrumental in furthering the escape of a fugitive slave. Another instance of this kind has been recorded by Mr. Conway, who was introduced to Thoreau by Emerson in the summer of 1853. Footnote. Fraser, April 1866. End footnote. When I went to the house next morning, I found them all in a state of excitement by reason of the arrival of a fugitive negro from the south, who had come fainting to their door about daybreak and thrown himself on their mercy. I sat and watched the singularly lowly and tender devotion of the scholar to the slave. He must be fed, his swollen feet bathed, and he must think of nothing but rest. Again and again this coolest and calmest of men drew near to the trembling negro and bade him feel at home and have no fear that any power should again wrong him. He could not walk this day, but must mount guard over the fugitive, for slave hunters were not extinct in those days, and so I went away after a while much impressed by many little traits that I had seen as they appeared in this emergency, and not much disposed to cavil at their source, whether Bible or Bhagavat. At this time Thoreau's mind was a good deal occupied with the question of slavery, for in 1850 the iniquitous fugitive slave law had been passed by act of Congress and in the spring of 1854 the heart of Massachusetts had been stirred by the case of Anthony Burns, an escaped slave who was sent back by the authorities of the state in compliance with the demand of his owner. This event formed the main topic of Thoreau's essay on slavery in Massachusetts, which was delivered as an address at the anti-slavery celebration at Framingham in 1854, on which occasion the Constitution of the United States was publicly burned by Lloyd Garrison, an incident which may explain the passionate tone of Thoreau's paper. For my part, he said, my oldest and worthiest pursuits have lost I cannot say how much of their attraction and i feel that my investment in life here is worth many per cent less since massachusetts last deliberately sent back an innocent man anthony burns to slavery in his kindred essay on civil disobedience when dealing with this same subject of state-supported slavery he had expressed the conviction that if but one honest man in the state of Massachusetts were to withdraw his allegiance as a protest against this iniquity, and to be imprisoned, therefore, 
it would be the abolition of slavery in america this was written before the appearance of john brown in eighteen fifty four occurred the most memorable event of thoreau's literary life the publication of walden by messrs tickner and company of boston the greater part of the book was drawn from the journal kept by thoreau during his residence in the woods but there are also passages which were written at a later date when he was working his materials into their ultimate form the inducement to thoreau to give the story of his sojourn at walden to the world was he tells us that very particular inquiries had been made by his townsmen concerning the manner of his life and that he felt he had something to say which bore not remotely on the social condition of the inhabitants of concord the result justified the expectations of the author in writing the book and of the publishers in printing it for in spite of the ridicule and hostility of some critics a great deal of interest was aroused by walden and the edition appears to have been sold out in the course of a few years in marked contrast to the unsalableness of its predecessor the week footnote in march eighteen fifty five the new york knickerbocker devoted an article entitled town and rural humbugs to a comparison of barnum and thoreau and declared walden to be the antidote of barnum's autobiography walden was reviewed in putnam's magazine in eighteen fifty four and was noticed in this country in chambers journal for november eighteen fifty seven under the title of an american diogenes and footnote from whatever point of view it be regarded walden is undoubtedly thoreau's masterpiece it contains the sum and essence of his ideal philosophy it is written in his most powerful and incisive style while by the freshness and naivete of its narrative it excites the sympathy and imagination of the reader and wins a popularity far exceeding that of his other writings welcome englishman welcome englishman thoreau exclaimed in walden for i had had communication with that race a young englishman mr chumley is just now waiting for me to take a walk with him he writes in a letter dated the first of october eighteen fifty four this was mr thomas chumley of overly cheshire a nephew of bishop heber and six years thoreau's junior in age the only englishman it appears with whom thoreau ever became intimate he spent some time with thoreau at concord accompanying him on a visit to mr ricketson a friend who lived at new bedford and the strong personal admiration which this travelled english gentleman conceived for the concord hermit is one of many testimonies to thoreau's singularly impressive character 
a correspondence was maintained after Mr. Chumley's return to Europe in 1855, and towards the end of that year Thoreau received a splendid gift of Oriental books from his English friend, who knew how deep an interest he felt in Buddhist literature. Mr. Chumley again visited Concord in 1859. In later years he took the name of Owen. He succeeded to the Condover estate near Shrewsbury in 1863 and died in the following year. Increasing fame brought Thoreau an increasing number of friends, while his intimacy with Emerson, Alcott, and Channing continued as close as ever. One of these later friends and correspondents was Mr. Daniel Ricketson. Their first meeting was at Christmas, 1854, when Thoreau, then on his way to lecture at Nantucket, paid a passing visit to New Bedford, and spent a day or two in Mr. Ricketson's house. On presenting himself to his host, he was at first mistaken, as on several other occasions, for a peddler of small wares. But this unfavorable impression was quickly corrected when he gave proof of his singular conversational powers. The points in his personal appearance which particularly arrested Mr. Ricketson's attention were his keen blue eyes, full of the greatest humanity and intelligence, and next to these his sloping shoulders, in which he resembled Emerson, long arms, and short sturdy legs, which generally enabled him to outwalk his companions in his daily excursions. In Mr. F. B. Sanborn, who as a young man came to live at Concord early in 1855, Thoreau found another friend with whom he gradually became intimate. The first impressions of Thoreau, as recorded at the time by one who was destined to be his biographer a quarter of a century later, are extremely interesting. Thoreau looks eminently sagacious, like a sort of wise wild beast. He dresses plainly, wears a beard in his throat, and has a brown complexion. Thoreau's beard, which is here for the first time mentioned, must have been of quite recent growth, for in the crayon portrait of 1854 he appears as beardless. Thoreau's friendship with Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune, had been kept up since his visit to Staten Island chiefly by letter, for Thoreau was seldom at New York but Greeley had done him valuable service at a critical period in obtaining publication for several of his articles in Graham, Putnam, and other magazines, and in acting generally as a literary friend and adviser. Greeley had a farm at Chappaqua, 36 miles north of New York, and in the early part of 1856, he pressed Thoreau to come to reside at this place and act as tutor to his children, which offer seems to have been for a time seriously entertained. It was in the following November, when Thoreau accompanied Alcott 
on a short visit to Chappaqua, that he had a memorable interview with an even more powerful and remarkable personality than his own. The meeting of Thoreau with Walt Whitman, of the author of Walden and the author of Leaves of Grass, is told by Thoreau in his letters to Mr. Blake. It is remarkable, when one considers the strong dissimilarity between the two men, types as they are of different sides of human nature, the thrifty, simple, self-complete type, as opposed to the largely inclusive and sympathetic, that Thoreau should have so rightly appreciated, after one short conversation, the breath of Whitman's genius, and should have recognized in him the greatest Democrat the world has seen, one who suggested something a little more than human. To be sure, wrote Thoreau, I sometimes feel a little imposed on. By his hardiness and broad generalities, he puts me into a liberal frame of mind, prepared to see wonders, as it were, sets me upon a hill or in the midst of a plain, stirs me well up, and then throws in a thousand of brick. Though rude and sometimes ineffectual, it is a great primitive poem, an alarum or trumpet-note ringing through the American camp. Wonderfully like the Orientals, too, considering that when I asked him if he had read them, he answered, No, tell me about them. I did not get far in conversation with him, two more being present, and among the few things I chanced to say, I remember that one was, in answer to him as representing America, that I did not think much of America or of politics and so on, which may have been somewhat of a damper to him. Since I have seen him, I find that I am not disturbed by any brag or egoism in his book. He may turn out the least of a braggart of all, having a better right to be confident. He is a great fellow. We can only regret that Whitman, on his part, left no record of his impressions of Thoreau. But it is interesting, in this connection, to note the mention of Thoreau in Specimen Days in America. On the 17th of September, 1881, when visiting Concord, Whitman met Emerson, Alcott, Louisa Alcott, and other Concord friends. A good deal of talk, he records, the subject Henry Thoreau, some new glints of his life and fortunes with letters to and from him, one of the best by Margaret Fuller, others by Horace Greeley, Channing, etc., one from Thoreau himself, most quaint and interesting. Mr. Sanborn informs me that on this occasion Whitman expressed a high opinion of Thoreau. In the following year, Thoreau had the satisfaction of meeting another of the great figures of American democracy. John Brown, then fresh from his anti-slavery struggle in Kansas, was a guest at Mr. Sanborn's house in March 1857. 
and was introduced by his host to Emerson, Alcott, Thoreau, and other Concord friends. It was arranged that Brown should address a meeting in the town hall on the subject of slaveholding. On the day appointed, says Mr. Sanborn, Brown went up from Boston at noon and dined with Mr. Thoreau, then a member of his father's family, and residing not far from the railroad station. Footnote. Memoirs of John Brown, 1878. End footnote. The two idealists, both of them in revolt against the civil government because of its base subservience to slavery, found themselves friends from the beginning of their acquaintance. They sat after dinner discussing the events of the border warfare in Kansas and Brown's share in them, when, as it often happened, Mr. Emerson called at Mr. Thoreau's door on some errand to his friend. Thus the three men met under the same roof, and found that they held the same opinion of what was uppermost in the mind of Brown. Emerson and Thoreau were both present at the meeting in the evening, when Brown produced a thrilling effect on his audience by his earnestness and eloquence, and by the display of the very chain wore by one of his sons who had been made prisoner and tortured by the champions of slavery. From that time there were many people in Concord who were favorable to Brown's cause. On the occasion of one of his visits to Mr. Ricketson at Brooklawn, New Bedford, Thoreau surprised the company by an unexpected outburst of hilarity, under which impulse he sang Tom Bowling, and finally entered upon an improvised dance. Mr. Ricketson, not being able to stand what appeared at the time the somewhat ludicrous appearance of our Walden hermit, retreated to his shanty a short distance from his house, whilst the more humor-loving Alcott remained to see the entertainment. Thoreau afterwards told his sister Sophia that in the excitement of this dance he had made a point of treading on the toes of the guileless Alcott. Here is an extract from Alcott's diary in 1857. First of April, 1857. At Mr. Ricketson's, two and a half miles from New Bedford, a neat country residence, surrounded by wild pastures and low woods, the little stream Okushnet flowing east of the house and into Fairhaven Bay at the city. Ricketson's tastes are pastoral, simple even to wildness, and he passes a good part of his day in the fields and woods, or in his rude shanty near his house, where he writes and reads his favorite authors, Cooper having the first place in his affections. He is in easy circumstances, and has the manners of an English gentleman, frank, hospitable, and with positive persuasions of his own a man to feel on good terms with, and reliable as to the things good and true, mercurial perhaps, and wayward a little sometimes. 3rd of April, A.M. 
in-house and shanty, Thoreau and Rickettson treating of nature and the wild. Thoreau has visited Rickettson before and won him as a disciple, though not in the absolute way he has Blake of Worcester, whose love for his genius partakes of the exceeding tenderness of women, and is a pure platonism to the fineness and delicacy of the devotee's sensibility. But Rickettson is himself, and plays the manly part in the matter, defending himself against the master's tough thoroughcraft with spirit and ability. Mr. Blake's estimate of Thoreau's character has already been quoted. Equally interesting is that given me by Mr. Rickettson, with which this chapter may fitly conclude. On this point I can bear my own testimony, that without any formality he was remarkable in his uprightness and honesty, industrious and frugal, simple though not fastidious in his tastes, whether in food, dress, or address, an admirable conversationist, and a good storyteller, not wanting in humor. His full blue eye, aquiline nose, and peculiarly pursed lips added much to the effect of the descriptive powers. He was a man of rare courage, physically and intellectually. In the way of the former, he arrested two young fellows on the lonely road leading to his hermitage by Walden Pond, who were endeavoring to entrap a young woman on her way home, and took them to the village. Intellectually, his was a strong, manly mind, enriched by a classical education and extensive knowledge of history, ancient and modern, and English literature, himself a good versifier, if not true poet, whose poetic character is often seen in his prose works. End of chapter 6「Chapter Seven of Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven To avoid the need of too frequently breaking the continuity of the story of Thoreau's Concord life, it is convenient to group together some of the chief excursions made by him between 1846 and 1860. And first, as to his mode of journeying. The perfection of traveling, he thought, was to travel without luggage, and after considerable experience, he decided that the best bag for the foot traveler is made with a handkerchief, or, if he study appearances, a piece of stiff brown paper well tied up. He would travel as a common man, and not as a gentleman, for he had no wish to spend a moment more than was necessary in the railway carriage, among the sedentary travellers whose legs hang dangling the while, or to be a prey to the civility and rapacity of the landlord of hotels. He preferred to journey on foot, and to spend the night in the homes of farmers and fishermen, 
where he could sit by the kitchen fire and hear the sort of conversation in which he was always interested. The cheapest way to travel, he wrote in the week, and the way to travel the farthest and the shortest distance is to go afoot, carrying a dipper, a spoon, and a fish line, some Indian meal, some salt, and some sugar. When you come to a brook or pond, you can catch fish and cook them, or you can boil a hasty pudding, or you can buy a loaf of bread at a farmer's house for four pence, moisten it in the next brook that crosses the road, and dip it in your sugar. This alone will last you a whole day. He wore a shabby gray coat and a drab hat, and carried with him a piece of tallow for greasing his boots, for he no more thought of blacking these than his face. And many an officious shoe-black, he tells us, who carried off his shoes while he was slumbering, mistaking him for a gentleman, had occasion to repent it before he produced a gloss on them. He was better pleased when the farmers called out to him, as he passed their fields, to come and help in the haymaking, or when he was mistaken for a traveling mechanic and asked to do tinkering jobs and repair clocks or umbrellas, or when, as once happened, a man wished to buy the tin cup which he carried strapped to his belt. Before starting on an expedition, it was his habit to procure all the available information from maps and guidebooks, and he often took with him a part of the large government map of Massachusetts. His pack was quickly made up, for he kept a list of the few necessaries that he carried, among which were sewing materials, a book for pressing plants, spyglass, compass, and measuring tape. He had learnt the art of camping out in his earlier excursions, and was well skilled in pitching a tent or constructing a hut at the shortest possible notice. On these occasions his favourite drink was tea, which he made strong and sweet in his tin cup, so that, as Channing hints, the traveller was not only refreshed, but grew intimate with tea-leaves. He was fond of carrying with him a large slice of cake with plums in it, for he found that this furnished him with dinner and dessert at the same time. Thus simply equipped, he was practically independent of timetables and hotel lists, could roam wherever the fancy took him, and take his own time in his observation of the fauna and flora of the districts which he visited. Such expeditions were not only an agreeable change in themselves, but were a means of adding to his various collections and suggesting new subjects for his pen so that it was natural that the pleasant experience which he gained in his week's jaunt in 1839 should have been repeated more frequently in later years. Cape Cod, the long sandy spit which was visited by Thoreau in 1849, and on several later occasions, is described by him as the bared and bended arm of Massachusetts, behind which the state stands on her guard with her back to the green mountains and her feet 
planted on the floor of the ocean like an athlete protecting her bay. All wild and desolate landscapes had an attraction for him, and he delighted in the dreary expanse of this long monotonous tract of shore with its driftwood and kelpweed, flocks of gulls and plovers, and incessant din of waves. His accounts of these vast sandy tracts are extremely vivid and picturesque. The very dash and roar of the waves seem to be reproduced as though we were reading, as the author suggests, with a large conch shell at our ear. It was amidst these surroundings that Thoreau, after witnessing the pathetic scenes that followed the wreck of an Irish brig at Cohasset, walked and meditated with a companion, Ellery Channing, presumably, though the name is not recorded, in the wet, windy days of a stormy October. Day by day, it has been said, with his stout pedestrian shoes, he plodded along that level beach, the eternal ocean on one side, and human existence reduced to its simplest elements on the other, and he pitilessly weighing each. They journeyed northward, on the Atlantic side of the Cape, till they came to Provincetown at its upper extremity, avoiding towns and villages on their route, and spending the nights in the cottages of fishermen and lighthouse keepers, where Thoreau was several times mistaken for a traveling peddler. Well, said an old fisherman, unconvinced by the explanations that had been offered, it makes no odds what it is you carry, so long as you carry truth along with you. At Wellfleet, where the wayfarers were entertained in the hut of an aged oysterman, an idiot son of their host expressed his determination to get a gun and shoot the damned book peddlers all the time talking about books. What might have been a more serious misunderstanding was caused by a robbery of the Provincetown Bank about the time of their visit to Cape Cod, for Thoreau learnt afterwards that the suspicion of the police had centred on him and his companion, and that their journey had been traced the whole length of the Cape. The volume on Cape Cod, parts of which appeared in Putnam's Magazine in 1855, and in the Atlantic Monthly in 1864, is deliberately formless in style, being interspersed with quotations from old histories and records of merely local interest. It abounds, however, in its author's dry, sententious humor and sparkling paradoxes. It has been said that Cape Cod is in one sense the most human of Thoreau's books, and has more tenderness of tone than Walden, as if the sea had exercised a mellowing influence on his mind. Especially good are the Dutch pictures of the well-fleet oystermen and the sea captains of Provincetown. It is worth the while, says Thoreau, to talk with one whom his neighbors address as captain, though his craft may have long been sunk, and he may be holding by his teeth to the shattered mast of a pipe alone, and only gets half seas over in a figurative sense now. 
he is pretty sure to vindicate his right to the title at last, can tell one or two good stories at least. In Cape Cod, the experiences of several visits are condensed into one account. On the 25th of September, 1850, Thoreau and Ellery Channing started on a week's tour in Canada, equipped each of them in the simple fashion which Thoreau adopted on his excursions. He avows that he wore his bad weather clothes on this occasion, and styling themselves, accordingly, the Knights of the Umbrella and the Bundle. They first visited Montreal, where the Church of Notre Dame made a great impression on Thoreau's imagination, as described by him in a very characteristic passage. It was a great cave in the midst of a city, and what were the altars and the tinsel but the sparkling stalactites, into which you entered in a moment, and where the still atmosphere and the sombre light disposed to serious and profitable thought. Such a cave at hand, which you can enter any day, is worth a thousand of our churches, which are open only Sundays, hardly long enough for an airing, and then filled with a bustling congregation, a church where the priest is the least part, where you do your own preaching, where the universe preaches to you and can be heard. In Concord, to be sure, we do not need such. Our forests are such a church, far grander and more sacred. I think of its value not only to religion, but to philosophy and to poetry. Besides a reading-room, to have a thinking-room in every city. Perchance the time will come when every house even will have not only its sleeping-rooms and dining-room and talking-room or parlor, but its thinking-room also, and the architects will put it in their plans. Let it be furnished and ornamented with whatever conduces to serious and creative thought. I should not object to the holy water, or any other simple symbol, if it were consecrated by the imagination of the worshippers. Footnote. Putnam's Magazine, 1853. And footnote. From Montreal they went on to Quebec, and thence to the falls of St. Anne, thirty miles lower down the St. Lawrence. In the latter district they obtained lodging in a house where their French host and his family could speak but a few words of English, and they concluded that a less crime would be committed on the whole if they spoke French with him and in no respect aided or abetted his attempts to speak English, a resolve which they carried into effect with some amusing difficulties, for in spite of his Gaelic extraction, a knowledge of the French tongue was not one of Thoreau's accomplishments, solving their frequent misunderstandings by writing on the table with a piece of chalk. What chiefly impressed Thoreau during his brief visit to Canada, was the contrast between the imperialism of the Canadian cities, whose inhabitants appeared to him to be suffering between two fires, the soldiery and the priesthood, 
and the more homely free-thinking independence of American life. The excursion to Canada, in which his experiences and impressions are related, was partly published in Putnam in 1853. It is certainly one of the least successful of its author's writings. For though it contains a few fine passages and interesting touches, it is overladen with description, the cities being, as Horace Greeley expressed it, described to death. "'I fear that I have not got much to say about Canada,' says Thoreau in his opening sentence, "'not having seen much. What I got by going to Canada was a cold.'" The object of Thoreau's three excursions to the Maine woods, the wild district which lies at the extreme northeast of New England, was chiefly to gratify his strong curiosity and interest in the habits and character of the Indians. In September 1846, during his fortnight's absence from the Walden Hermitage, he visited Maine and in company with a cousin, who was employed in the Bangor lumber trade, made a voyage up the western branch of the Penobscot River, and descended Katahdin, one of the loftiest mountains of New England, over five thousand feet in height. The paper on Katahdin and the Maine Woods, which appeared in the Union Magazine in 1848, is a record of this expedition, and contains some vivid descriptions of the outlying lumber farms and log huts, the manufacture and management of the bateau, or bark canoe, by which they navigated the rapids of the Penobscot, their trout fishing extraordinary in the clear swift streams which descend from the heights of Katahdin, and above all, the primitive solitudes of the main forests which were still the haunt of the bear the moose the deer the wolf and other animals perhaps i most fully realized that this was primeval untamed and forever untamable nature or whatever else men call it while coming down this part of the mountain we were passing over burnt lands, burnt by lightning perchance, though they showed no recent marks of fire, hardly so much as a charred stump, but looked rather like a natural pasture for the moose and deer, exceedingly wild and desolate, with occasional strips of timber crossing them, and low poplars springing up, and patches of blueberries here and there. I found myself traversing them familiarly, like some pasture run to waste, or partially reclaimed by man. But when I reflected what man, what brother or sister or kinsman of our race made it and claimed it, I expected the proprietor to rise up and dispute my passage. It is difficult to conceive of a region uninhabited by man. We habitually presume his presence and influence everywhere, and yet we have not seen pure nature, unless we have seen her thus vast and drear and inhuman, though in the midst of cities. 
What is most striking in the main wilderness is the continuousness of the forest, with fewer open intervals or glades than you had imagined. Except the few burnt lands, the narrow intervals on the rivers, the bare tops of the high mountains, and the lakes and streams, the forest is uninterrupted. It is even more grim and wild than you had anticipated. A damp and intricate wilderness, in the spring everywhere wet and miry. Who shall describe the inexpressible tenderness and immortal life of the grim forest, where nature, though it be midwinter, is ever in her spring, where the moss-grown and decaying trees are not old, but seem to enjoy a perpetual youth, and blissful, innocent nature, like a serene infant, is too happy to make a noise except by a few tinkling, lisping birds and trickling rills. In the autumn of 1853, Thoreau, accompanied by the same relative, and by an Indian hunter named Joe Aitian, paid his second visit to the main woods, the lake of Chusuncook being this time his destination. The paper entitled Chusuncook, which was published in the Atlantic Monthly in 1858, is occupied in great measure with the subject of moose hunting, and contains, among other things, some characteristic reflections on the murder of the moose, in which Thoreau had been a witness and to some extent a participator. The Allagash and East Branch, the account of his third and final excursion to Maine, in July 1857, at which time he had been in weak health for two years, forms the concluding portion of the volume afterwards published under the title of The Maine Woods and is chiefly concerned with geographical topics, botanical specimens, and the character of Joe Polis, an intelligent Indian guide, from whom Thoreau derived much valuable information. As to Thoreau's courage and manliness, says Mr. Edward Hoare of Concord, who was his fellow-traveller on this expedition, Nobody who had seen him among the Penobscot rocks and rapids, the Indian trusting his life and his canoe to his skill, promptitude, and nerve, would ever doubt it. The following extracts from a letter addressed by Thoreau to Colonel Wentworth Higginson, in reference to a projected tour through the main forests to Canada, are interesting as showing with what precision and practical acuteness his expeditions were planned. Concord, 28th of January, 1858. Dear Sir, It would be perfectly practicable to go to the Madawaska the way you propose. As for the route to Quebec, I do not find the Sugarloaf Mountains on my maps. The most direct and regular way, as you know, is substantially Montresor's and Arnold's and the younger John Smith's by the Chaudière. But this is less wild. If your object is rather to see the St. Lawrence River below Quebec, you will probably strike it 
at the Riviere du Loup, v. Hodge's account of his excursion thither via the Allagash. I believe it is the second report on the geology of the public lands of Maine and Mass in 37. I think that our Indian last summer, when we talked of going to the St. Lawrence, named another route, near the Madawaska, perhaps the St. Francis, which would save the long portage which Hodge made. I do not know whether you think of ascending the St. Lawrence in a canoe, but if you should, you might be delayed, not only by the current, but by the waves which frequently run too high for a canoe on such a mighty stream. It would be a grand excursion to go to Quebec by the Chaudière, descend the St. Lawrence to the Riviere de Loup, and return by the Madawaska and St. John's to Fredericton, or further, almost all the way downstream, a very important consideration. Perhaps you would like a few more details. We used, three of us, exactly twenty-six pounds of hard bread, fourteen pounds of pork, three pounds of coffee, twelve pounds of sugar, and could have used more, besides a little tea, Indian meal and rice, and plenty of berries and moose meat. This was faring very luxuriously. I had not formerly carried coffee, sugar, or rice, but for solid food I decide that it is not worth the while to carry anything but hard bread and pork, whatever your tastes and habits may be. These wear best, and you have no time nor dishes in which to cook anything else. Of course, you will take a little Indian meal to fry fish in, and half a dozen lemons also, if you have sugar, will be very refreshing, for the water is warm. To save time, the sugar, coffee, tea, salt, etc., etc., should be in separate water-tight bags, labeled and tied with a leathern string, and all the provisions and blankets should be put into two large india-rubber bags, if you can find them water-tight. Ours were not. A four-quart tin pail makes a good kettle for all purposes, and tin plates are portable and convenient. Don't forget an india-rubber knapsack with a large flap, plenty of dishcloths, old newspapers, strings, and twenty-five feet of strong cord. Of india-rubber clothing, the most you can wear, if any, is a very light coat, and that you cannot work in. I could be more particular, but perhaps have been too much so already. Yours truly, Henry D. Thoreau. Mention has already been made of Thoreau's fondness for mountains. He possessed in a marked degree the instinct of topography, and with map and compass would make out his way unerringly through the wildest regions, and could run up the steepest places without losing breath. He ascended such hills as Monadnock or Saddleback Mountains, says Channing, by his own path, and would lay down his map on the summit and draw a line to the point he proposed to visit below 
perhaps forty miles away in the landscape, and set off bravely to make the shortcut. The lowland people wondered to see him scaling the heights as if he had lost his way, or at his jumping over their cow-yard fences, asking if he had fallen from the clouds. In July 1858 he made another expedition with his friend Edward Hoare, this time to the White Mountains of New Hampshire, the Switzerland of New England, which he had visited with his brother nineteen years earlier. They traveled by carriage, and Thoreau complains in his journal of the loss of independence, as regards choice of camping stations, which this method involved. It was not simple and adventurous enough to suit his tastes. He also disliked the mountain houses which were already erected in New Hampshire, with large saloons and other appurtenances of the city, for the supposed convenience of the tourist. Give me, he says, a spruce house made in the rain. Their chief exploit during the fortnight they spent in New Hampshire was the ascent of Mount Washington, the highest mountain in New England, where, in descending towards Tuckerman's Ravine, the row lost his footing on the steep crust of a snow slope, and was only saved by digging his fingernails into the snow. They camped for several days in the plantation of dwarf firs near the foot of the ravine, and by the carelessness of their guide in lighting a fire, several acres of brushwood were burnt. The next afternoon Thoreau sprained his ankle while scrambling on the rocks, and was laid up in the camp for two or three days. Monadnock, a mountain of nearly four thousand feet, which is visible from Concord on the northwest horizon, had been visited by Thoreau, like Wachusett, in his early manhood. In 1858, a month before his excursion to the White Mountains, he camped a couple of nights on its summit in company with Mr. Blake, and two years later he again ascended it with Ellery Channing, who, being unaccustomed to mountain life, did not relish its inconveniences as much as his friend, but complains pathetically of the fatigue, the blazing sun, the face getting broiled, the pint cup never scoured, shaving unutterable, your stockings dreary, having taken to peat and other similar discomforts. This visit to Monadnock was the last excursion of Thoreau's in which he camped out. The reasons which compelled the discontinuance of a practice in which he found such pleasure will appear when we resume the story of his life at Concord. End of chapter 7《Chapter Eight, Part One, of Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight, Part One. As early as 1855, Thoreau's health had begun to be a matter of some anxiety to himself and to his friends. 
frequent mention has been made by those who knew him personally of the iron endurance and sturdy strength of limb which enabled him to outstrip the companions of his walks and open-air pursuits emerson who was himself little qualified for an outdoor life marvelled at his friend's indefatigable energy in tree felling and field work while channing and others who accompanied him to the mountains suffered acutely from the exposure thoreau seemed not to feel nevertheless this power of prolonged endurance was due there is reason to believe far more to an indomitable spirit than to a natural strength of constitution for idealist as he was he was too apt to compel his body at all times to keep pace with his mind and if he was somewhat exacting in his demands on his friends he had still less consideration for his own weaknesses the physique given him at birth says dr e w emerson was unusually slight i have never seen a person with more sloping shoulders and seldom a narrower chest yet he made his frame all that it could be made it is on record that his college career was interrupted by an illness which kept him for some time from his studies and as early as 1841, there is reference in the journal to a bronchial attack, which is significant when read in connection with the story of his closing years. In the autumn of 1855, we find him writing of the months of feebleness that had preceded, and of his satisfaction at partly regaining his health, though he would have liked to know first what it was that ailed him. During the winter that followed, he was able to walk afield as usual, and boasts that he had made it a part of his business to wade in the snow and take the measure of the ice, and that, in spite of his recent ill health, he was probably the greatest walker in Concord. In the spring of 1857, he refers to his two-year-old invalidity, from which we see that the disquieting symptoms had not wholly abated. And it cannot be doubted that he at all times subjected himself to considerable risks, both by the severity of his exertions in carrying heavy loads and taking long walks, and also in the recklessness with which he exposed himself to all extremes of weather and all changes of season, regardless alike of frost and sun, wind and snow, the chills of midnight, and the mists of the early morning. For the present, however, we hear no more of his illness, and he continued to lead the same equable, contented state of life which has already been described. After the appearance of Walden in 1854, Thoreau did not publish any further volume, though he was busily engaged in various literary plans, chief among which was his projected book on the Indians. His relations with editors and publishers, 
partly no doubt owing to his own unaccommodating temperament, had not always been of the most amicable kind. His essays were repeatedly refused by papers and magazines on account of their religious unorthodoxy. And it is said an editor once begged Emerson to persuade Thoreau to write an article containing no allusion to God. In 1858, when, at Emerson's suggestion, he contributed his paper on Chisuncook, the Maine Woods, to the Atlantic Monthly, of which Mr. Lowell was then editor, a fresh point of difference arose. A sentence in which Thoreau had spoken, in his idealistic style of the living spirit of the pine tree, quote, It is as immortal as I am, and perchance will go to as high a heaven, there to tower above me still, end quote was struck out under editorial censorship without the permission of the author, and this being an indignity to which Thoreau would never submit. He sent no more of his essays to the Atlantic Monthly until the editorship had passed into other hands. The sentence in question was of course restored when the article on Chisuncook was included in the volume on the Maine Woods. On 3rd of February, 1857, Thoreau records in his diary the death of his father, who had lived to the age of 72. This was the third time he had mourned the loss of a near relative, his brother having died, as narrated, in 1842, and his sister Helen in 1849. In the following letter to Mr. Daniel Ricketson, he gives an interesting account of his father's character. Concord, 12th of February, 1859. Friend Ricketson, I thank you for your kind letter, I sent you the notice of my father's death as much because you knew him as because you know me. I can hardly realize that he is dead. He had been sick about two years, and at last declined rather rapidly, though steadily. Till within a week or ten days before he died, he was hoping to see another spring— but he then discovered that this was a vain expectation, and thinking that he was dying, he took his leave of us several times within a week before his departure. Once or twice he expressed a slight impatience at the delay. He was quite conscious to the last, and his death was so easy that though we had all been sitting around the bed for an hour or more expecting the event, as we had sat before, he was gone at last, almost before we were aware of it. I am glad to read what you say about his social nature. I think I may say that he was wholly unpretending, and there was this peculiarity in his aim— that though he had pecuniary difficulties to contend with the greater part of his life, he always studied merely how to make a good article, pencil or other, for he practiced various arts, and was never satisfied with what he had produced. 
nor was he ever in the least disposed to put off a poor one for the sake of pecuniary gain, as if he labored for a higher end. Though he was not very old, and was not a native of Concord, I think that he was, on the whole, more identified with Concord Street than any man now alive, having come here when he was about twelve years old, and set up for himself as a merchant here at the age of twenty-one, fifty years ago. As I sat in a circle the other evening with my mother and sister, my mother's two sisters and my father's two sisters, it occurred to me that my father, though seventy-one, belonged to the youngest four of the eight who recently composed our family. How swiftly at last, but unnoticed, a generation passes away. Three years ago I was called with my father to be a witness to the signing of our neighbor Mr. Frost's will. Mr. Samuel Hoare, who was there writing it, also signed it. I was lately required to go to Cambridge to testify to the genuineness of the will, being the only one of the four who could be there, and now I am the only one alive. My mother and sister, thank you heartily for your sympathy. The latter in particular agrees with you in thinking that it is communion with still living and healthy nature alone which can restore to sane and cheerful views. I thank you for your invitation to New Bedford, but I feel somewhat confined here for the present. I did not know but we should see you the day after Alger was here. It is not too late for a winter walk in Concord. It does me good to hear of spring birds and singing ones, too, for spring seems far away from Concord yet. I am going to Worcester to read a parlor lecture on the 22nd, and shall see Blake and Brown. What if you were to meet me there, or go with me from here? You would see them to good advantage. Chumley has been here again, after going as far south as Virginia, and left for Canada about three weeks ago. He is a good soul, and I am afraid that I did not sufficiently recognize him. Please remember me to Mrs. Ricketson, and to the rest of your family. Yours, Henry David Thoreau. After his father's death, Thoreau carried on the family business, pencil-making and the preparation of plumbago, on behalf of his mother and his younger sister Sophia. This same year, 1859, was destined to be one of the most memorable in his experience. We have seen how he was, from the first, an ardent abolitionist, how he had withdrawn his allegiance from the state of Massachusetts owing to its sanction of slavery, and had delivered lectures and published essays on the subject at a time when the outspoken profession of abolitionist principles was neither safe nor comfortable, and how he had himself assisted escaped slaves in their flight to Canada. 
true-hearted American though he was, he had little respect for the patriotic feelings of those of his fellow countrymen who could combine a pride in their national liberties with an indifference to Negro slavery. And on one of the occasions when a runaway was surrendered to his owners by the Massachusetts government, he is said to have proposed to his townsmen at Concord that the monument which commemorated American independence should be coated with black paint. When he was introduced to John Brown in 1857, he doubtless recognized in him the one righteous man whose advent he had heralded in the essay on slavery in Massachusetts which he had written and published several years before. And it is not difficult to imagine the intensity of admiration with which he must have followed the phases of the great emancipator's career. Himself an individualist, and, as regards politics, less a man of action than a man of thought, he reverenced in Brown the very qualities in which he was himself deficient. The final effort of Brown's heroism was now at hand, and the events that followed proved to be in some respects the crowning point of Thoreau's life also. In October 1859, John Brown, who was just entering on his sixtieth year, was again in Concord, and it was from Mr. Sanborn's house that he started on his last and fateful expedition against the Virginian slaveholders. On the 16th of October, Brown was arrested at Harper's Ferry, and then ensued those seven weeks of suspense and anxiety and vituperation which ended in his trial and death. To Thoreau, the anchorite and idealist, belongs the lasting honor of having spoken the first public utterance on behalf of John Brown, at a time when a torrent of ridicule and abuse was being poured by the American press on the so-called crazy enthusiast whose life was to pay forfeit for his boldness. Notice was given by Thoreau that he would speak in the town hall on Sunday evening, 30th of October, on the subject of John Brown's condition and character. And when this course was deprecated by certain Republicans and abolitionists as hasty and ill-advised, they received the emphatic assurance that he had not sent to them for advice but to announce his intention of speaking. A large and attentive audience, composed of men of all parties, assembled to hear Thoreau's address, the plea for Captain John Brown, which is in every respect one of the very finest of his writings. In the plainest and most unequivocal terms, and with all his accustomed incisiveness of style and expression, he avowed his absolute approval of the conduct of a man who was indicted as a rebel and traitor. When we read the magnificent and heart-stirring passages in which he eulogized the heroic character of John Brown, 
we can well believe emerson's statement that the address was heard by all respectfully by many with a sympathy that surprised themselves on november first thoreau read the same lecture at boston an event which was reported in the liberator of november fourth this exciting theme it says seemed to have awakened the hermit of concord from his usual state of philosophic indifference and he spoke with real enthusiasm for an hour and a half a very large audience listened to this lecture crowding the hall half an hour before the time of its commencement and giving hearty applause to some of the most energetic expressions of the speaker the time was short and from the first it could scarcely have been hoped that brown's life would be spared those few weeks were probably the only period in thoreau's career when he turned in vain to nature for the customary comfort and repose and he has put on record the stunned incredulous feelings with which he received on the second of december the news of the execution on that day a solemn service in commemoration of brown's martyrdom was held in the town hall at concord when addresses were delivered by thoreau alcott emerson and other abolitionists and a funeral hymn composed by sanborn was sung by those assembled footnote these speeches may be read in echoes from harper's ferry boston 1860 and footnote thoreau regarded the whole episode of brown's capture and trial as a touchstone designed to bring out into a strong light the nature of the american government that it afforded a touchstone of his own character few will deny it has been well remarked by john burroughs that this instant an unequivocal endorsement of brown by thoreau in the face of the most overwhelming public opinion even among anti-slavery men throws a flood of light upon him it is the most significant act of his life it clinches him it makes the colors fast the plea for captain john brown which bears in every sentence unmistakable signs of the intensity of feeling under which it was written must have convinced even those of thoreau's hearers who were least in accord with him that they saw before them no cynical misanthrope who had placed himself in unreasonable antagonism to the social opinions of his townsmen but a man of humaner sympathies and larger aspirations than their own footnote yet professor nickel american literature speaks of thoreau as lethargic self-complacently defiant and too nearly a stoico-epicurean adiophorist to discompose himself in party or even in national strifes full justice is done to this zeal in the anti-slavery cause by dr jap h a page in his book on thoreau 
and footnote. And indeed the judgment of the good people of Concord had already changed concerning the eccentric recluse who some twelve years before had excited their contemptuous surprise by his sojourn in the Walden Woods. They had learned to appreciate the kindness and courtesy that underlay his rough exterior, and the shrewd wisdom which found expression in his trenchant and outspoken words. He thus came to be respected and honored in the very quarter where honor is proverbially most difficult to attain for the prophet who is not willing to prophesy smooth things and his fellow citizens recognized the superiority of character which addressed all men with a native authority nor had the lapse of years and the increase of experience failed to exercise a mellowing effect on thoreau's own temperament and his intimate friends have noted how the foibles and crudeness which marked the less pleasing side in his distinctive and self-assertive personality were gradually losing their sharpness as he grew older while he still retained all the freshness and originality of his genius and looked forward to the future with the same unbounded confidence as ever this prospect unhappily was not destined to be realized but there is satisfaction in the thought that it was his championship of john brown which formed the last public act of thoreau's career and that no act could possibly have been more characteristic and significant it was in november eighteen sixty that his fatal illness had its beginning he took a severe cold while counting the rings on trees at a time when the ground was covered with a deep snow. This led to a bronchial affection, which was increased by his persistence in keeping a lecturing engagement at Waterbury, and the precautions which he afterwards exercised were too late, as consumption had then set in it is to be noted that his grandfather the emigrant from st hellier had died of consumption so that it is possible that thoreau inherited consumptive tendencies from that source in the spring of eighteen sixty one he was advised by his doctor to travel and he was now willing to do in sickness what he had always refused to do in health though even now he preferred to remain within the boundaries of the states. Mr. Blake, being unable to accompany him in this journey to Minnesota, his place was taken by Horace Mann, a connection of Nathaniel Hawthorne's. In a letter addressed to Mr. Sanborn from Minnesota on the 26th of June, Thoreau speaks of himself as better in health than when he left home, but still far from well, having performed the journey in a very dead and alive manner, though he much enjoyed the weeks they spent in the neighborhood of St. Paul's and the novel sights of the Mississippi. 
From St. Paul's, Thoreau and his companion made a further expedition some three hundred miles up the Minnesota, or St. Peter's River, in order to witness a gathering of the Sioux Indians at Redwood, where an annual payment was made to the tribe by the United States government. One of the sites which most interested Thoreau during this tour in the West was that of the aboriginal crab-apple, as told by him in the essay on wild apples, which appeared in the Atlantic Monthly in 1862. Meantime, the spark which had been kindled by John Brown's heroism had not been quenched by his death, and the war between the northern and southern states had already commenced in the spring of 1861. The misfortunes of the North in the first months of the war affected Thoreau so powerfully that he used to say he could never recover while the war lasted, and he told his friends in these dark days that he was sick for his country. There is not the least justification for Lowell's statement that Thoreau looked with utter contempt on the august drama of destiny, of which his country was the scene, and on which the curtain had already risen. Was it Thoreau or Lowell, asks Wentworth Higginson, who found a voice when the curtain fell, after the first act of that drama, upon the scaffold of John Brown? Had Thoreau retained health and life, there is no telling but what the Civil War might have brought out a wholly new aspect of him, as it did for so many. End of chapter 8, part 1「The journey to Minnesota was not productive of any lasting improvement in Thoreau's health. When he visited Mr. Ricketson at New Bedford a few weeks later, on which occasion an ambrotype portrait was taken at Mr. Ricketson's request, his racking cough impressed his friend with the conviction that his strength was fast failing, though his face, except for a shade of sadness in the eyes, did not betray the change. But in the course of the winter that followed, it became evident that the disease had reached a point at which it could not be arrested, and that there was no longer any hope of saving his life. It was my good fortune to see him again last November, wrote G. W. Curtis, Harper's Magazine, July 1862, when he came into the library of a friend to borrow a volume of Pliny's letters. He was much wasted, and his doom was clear. But he talked in the old strain of wise gravity without either sentiment or sadness. Then it was that the exaltation of spirit over matter, of the mind over the body, which had throughout his life been one of Thoreau's prominent characteristics, 
was still more strongly manifested as he neared his death. Whatever his friends might feel, he himself appeared to be unaffected by his illness. He looked at himself, as it were, from an outer standpoint, surveying, without alarm and without anxiety, this intrusion into his bodily system of a weakness to which his mind at least should never be subject. It was one of Thoreau's maxims that work of some kind is as necessary for those who are sick as for those who are strong, and it is recorded by his sister Sophia, who, with their mother's help, tenderly nursed him in his illness, that to the last day of his life he never ceased to call for the manuscripts on which he was engaged. He was about to become a contributor to the Atlantic Monthly magazine, which was now edited by Mr. Fields in the place of Mr. Lowell. And during the last few months of his life he accomplished, in his sister's words, a vast amount of labor in preparing these papers for the press and in completing the records of his visits to the Maine woods. There was something fitting in the fact that in this closing scene of his life his thoughts should be occupied with the Indian, whom he resembled not only in his sympathy with wild nature, but also in his stoical reserve, unfaltering self-command, and passive acquiescence in whatever his destiny had in store for him. His unfailing patience and fortitude are described as wonderful by those who witnessed them. It was impossible to be sad in his presence, or to realize that one so cheerful and contented was on the verge of death. When he could not sleep, he would ask his sister to arrange the furniture so as to cast weird shadows on the walls, and he expressed the wish that his bed were in spiral form, that he might curl up in it as in a shell. At other times, when rest was not altogether denied him, he would interest his friends by a narration of his strange and fantastic dreams, saying that sleep seemed to hang round his bed in festoons. As long as sufficient strength remained to him, he resolutely took his seat at table with his mother and sister, insisting that it would not be social to take his meals alone, and when he could no longer walk, his bed was brought down into the front parlor of the house, where he was visited by many of his neighbors and townsmen, from whom, during the whole course of his illness, he received such touching and gratifying tokens of kindness and affection, that he would sometimes protest he would be ashamed to stay in the world after so much had been done for him. Several of the remarks which he made on these occasions were very characteristic. When Channing, the faithful and intimate companion of his walks and studies, hinted at the weary change that had now come over his life, and how solitude began to peer out curiously from the dells and wood-roads, he whispered in reply, "'It is better some things should end.' He said to Alcott that he should leave the world without a regret." 
nor in these last weary months of suffering did he lose his shrewd humor and native incisiveness of speech. "'Well, Mr. Thoreau, we must all go,' said a well-meaning visitor, who thought to comfort the dying man by the ordinary platitudes. "'When I was a boy,' answered Thoreau, "'I learned that I must die. So I am not disappointed now. Death is as near to you as it is to me.' When asked whether he had made his peace with God, he quietly replied that he had never quarreled with him. He was invited by another acquaintance to enter into a religious conversation concerning the next world. One world at a time was the prompt retort. It would, however, be an injustice to Thoreau to represent his deathbed as nothing but a scene of stoical fortitude and iron self-restraint. There are other and not less admirable traits of tenderness and love. From his window, which looked out on the village street, he saw passing and repassing some of his favorite children, whom he had so often conducted in their merry expeditions after the huckleberry or water-lily. "'Why don't they come to see me?' he said to his sister. "'I love them as if they were my own. And it is pleasant to read that they often visited him, and enjoyed these last meetings scarcely less than the first. The sound of music had the same charm for him to the end, and on hearing a street musician play some old tune that had been familiar to him in childhood, he is said to have shed tears and asked his mother to give the man some money. The thought of death was never a cause of anxiety to him, but terrible indeed to a man of Thoreau's temperament must have been the death in life of that long and dreary winter, when the daily walk and converse with nature, which had seemed necessities of his existence, were but memories of the past, and even the carefully kept journal must needs be discontinued, since there was in fact nothing to record. Yet of this outer life, in which for twenty-five years he had so faithfully and unremittingly busied himself, he now spoke no word and we are told that no stranger could have imagined from his manner that he ever had a friend in field or wood. Once only, as he stood at his window, did he allude to what must have been so constantly in his thoughts. "'I cannot see on the outside at all,' he said to his friend Channing. "'We thought ourselves great philosophers in those wet days,' when we used to go out and sit down by the wall-sides. There is on this point a singular and pathetic similarity between the Rose's last illness and that of Richard Jeffreys, who of all men was nearest to him in passionate devotion to open-air life. But the Rose's sterner and more reticent nature would not give his thoughts the expression in which Jeffreys found relief. It was on 6th of May, 1862, a beautiful spring morning, that the end came. 
at eight o'clock, shortly after enjoying the odor of a bunch of hyacinths from a friend's garden, he asked to be raised upright in his bed. His breathing became gradually fainter and fainter, until he died without pain or struggle in the presence of his mother and sister, his last audible words being moose and Indian, the thought still intent on the scenes that had detained it so long. He was buried near his brother and sister in Sleepy Hollow, the quiet Concord burial ground, close to the spot which became the grave of Nathaniel Hawthorne two years later. An address was given at the funeral by Emerson, and one of Thoreau's poems, Seek Vita, was read by Alcott. Footnote. Afterwards published in the Atlantic Monthly, August 1862, and prefixed to Excursions, 1863. A few sentences were omitted at Sophia Thoreau's request when the address was printed. Among these was one in which Emerson enumerated the persons whom Thoreau especially admired, viz. John Brown, the abolitionist, John Polis, an Indian guide, and one who is not known to those here assembled, i.e. Walt Whitman. End footnote. While we walked in procession up to the church, says one who was present, though the bell told the forty-four years he had numbered, we could not deem that he was dead, whose ideas and sentiments were so vivid in our souls. Footnote. W. R. Alger. Solitudes of Nature and of Man. End footnote. As the fading image of pathetic clay lay before us, strewn with wild flowers and forest sprigs, thoughts of its former occupant seemed blent with all the local landscapes. We still recall with emotion the tributary words so fitly spoken by friendly and illustrious lips. The hands of friends reverently lowered the body of the lonely poet, into the bosom of the earth, on the pleasant hillside of his native village, whose prospects will long wait to unfurl themselves to another observer so competent to discriminate their features and so attuned to their moods. His grave was marked by a red stone, which bore no inscription but his name and date of death. That stone is now gone. Its successor bears the names and dates of birth and death of every member of the family except John, whose birthday no one could recall. The rose collections of plants, Indian relics, and the like were bequeathed by him to the Society of Natural History at Boston, of which he was an honorary member. The family business of pencil-making was carried on for some years after his death by his sister Sophia, who herself lived till 1876. The last remaining member of the family was Miss Maria Thoreau, the sister of Thoreau's father, who outlived her brother and her brother's children 
and died in Maine at an advanced age in 1881. But though the family is thus extinct in New England, the name of Thoreau is indelibly associated with the scenes amidst which he lived and died, and it has been well remarked that the village of Concord is his monument, covered with suitable inscriptions by himself. A cairn of stones marks the site of the hut on the shore of Walden Pond, where the poet-naturalist spent the two most memorable years of his life and wrote the greater part of his most memorable volume. Footnote. The following is an extract from the journal of the greatest of the many pilgrims who have since visited these scenes. A half hour at Hawthorne's and Thoreau's graves. I got out and went up, of course on foot, and stood a long while and pondered. They lie close together in a pleasant wooded spot well up the cemetery hill, Sleepy Hollow. Then to Walden Pond, that beautifully embowered sheet of water, and spent over an hour there. On the spot in the woods where Thoreau had his solitary house is now quite a cairn of stones to mark the place. I too carried one and deposited on the heap. Walt Whitman's Specimen Days in America, September 1881. End footnote. My greatest skill, says Thoreau himself, in words that might stand as his epitaph, has been to want but little. For joy I could embrace the earth. I shall delight to be buried in it. And then I think of those amongst men who will know that I love them, though I tell them not. Truly there is a love that needs not telling, that is deepest and tenderest untold. And those who understand this love will understand the secret of Thoreau's story, and will never fail to own and reverence the sincerity and heroism of his life. He kept the temple as divine, wherein his soul abided. He heard the voice within the shrine, and followed it as guided. He found no bane of bitter strife, but laws of his designing. He quaffed the brimming cup of life, and went forth unrepining. Footnote. From a poem on Thoreau by S. A. Jones. End footnote. End chapter 8. Chapter 9, Part 1 of Life of Henry David Thoreau by Henry Salt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9, Part 1 A deliberate intent of advocating any particular class of doctrines is more than once disclaimed by Thoreau. He was an independent thinker, who put his theories into practice with unusual courage and expressed himself in his books with unusual frankness, but he had no preconceived designs on the opinions of his fellow men. He lived his life and said his say, 
and if he sought to exercise any influence on others, it was by no direct persuasion of argument or proselytism, but indirectly by the example of his own personality. He once asked a friend, who had entered the ministry, whether he had ever yet in preaching been so fortunate as to say anything. On being answered in the affirmative, he remarked, then your preaching days are over. Can you bear to say it again? By nature and temperament, he was averse to any elaborate system of philosophy or ethics. He questioned everything, and would accept no philosophical formula for himself, nor offer any to his readers. This constitutional unwillingness to be trammeled by any intellectual tenet left its mark very distinctly, both on the substance and the form of Thoreau's writings, and should be borne in mind when he is spoken of as the preacher of an ethical gospel. Nevertheless, since he did in truth dwell with much insistence on certain important truths, intellectual and moral, which are too generally overlooked, we are justified with this reservation in formulating as doctrines the views which he most frequently expressed. We have already seen that he was before everything an idealist. His transcendentalism was not an adopted creed, but an innate habit of mind from which he never swerved, and which dominated all his philosophy. So far, it may be said, he did not differ to any remarkable degree from other idealists, who have all more or less recognized and followed the guiding light of the inner consciousness. But here we come to that distinctive quality which sets Thoreau on a separate footing from Emerson and other transcendentalist writers, the resolute practicalness which shows itself as clearly in his doctrines as in his actions. Though the ideal was always before him, he had no taste for the subtleties of mere metaphysical abstractions, but made a strong actuality the basis of his reasoning. There were thus two sides to his character and philosophy. The one, the mystical and transcendental, which faced the boundless possibilities of the future. The other, the practical and terrestrial, which was concerned with the realities of the present and the past. It is true that these two qualities did not always work quite harmoniously together, for Thoreau was not careful to be systematic and verbally consistent. As he himself says, how can I communicate with the gods, who am a pencil-maker on earth, and not be insane? But, as a rule, the successful combination of common sense with transcendental sense is the characteristic feature of his doctrines. And this very dreamer and mystic who boasted that he built his castles in the air and then put the foundations under them could also assert with equal truth in another connection 
that it afforded him no satisfaction to commence to spring an arch before he had got a solid foundation. His philosophy of life is eminently keen-sighted, sound, and practical. It has been asserted that Thoreau is Emerson without domestic ties or wish for them, save for a streak of benevolence without those of humanity. Footnote. Professor Nichols, American Literature. End footnote. But this subordination of Thoreau as a mere pupil and follower of Emerson is not warranted by the facts of their relationship. The greater practicalness of Thoreau is frankly recognized by Emerson himself in a passage of his diary. In reading Henry Thoreau's journal, he wrote a year after his friend's death, I am very sensible of the vigor of his constitution. That oaken strength which I noted whenever he walked or worked or surveyed woodlots, the same unhesitating hand with which a field laborer accosts a piece of work which I should shun as a waste of strength, he shows in his literary task. He has muscle, and ventures on and performs feats which I am forced to decline. In reading him I find the same thoughts, the same spirit that is in me but he takes a step beyond and illustrates by excellent images that which I should have conveyed in a sleepy generalization. The resemblance of Thoreau to Emerson, says Mr. Conway, was as superficial as that of a leaf-like creature to a leaf. Thoreau was quite as original as Emerson. He was not an imitator of any mortal his thoughts and expressions are suggestions of a Thoreau principle at work in the universe. Footnote. Emerson at home and abroad. End footnote. This practical tendency in Thoreau was fostered and strengthened by his firm belief in the freedom of the human will. I know of no more encouraging fact, he says, than the unquestionable ability of man to elevate his life by a conscious endeavor. His religious and moral creed was founded on a fixed optimistic conviction that nature is working to some wise and benevolent end. Joy was for him the condition of life, and despondency nothing more than a senseless and idle aberration. Inspired by this optimistic faith, Thoreau inculcates, more strongly perhaps than any other writer, a sense of content in one's own personality. He would have each individual develop quietly according to his own capacity and conditions, to waste no time in brooding over the past, but to live in the present and nourish unbounded confidence in the future. This was the essence of his practical philosophy, and for support in this creed and refreshment in the weaker moments of life, he looked to the unfailing health and beneficence as he considered it of wild nature. 
this calm optimistic nature worship mainly determined thoreau's attitude towards the religious sects whose snappish tenacity and faint-hearted craving for external comfort and grace were in direct contrast to his own absolute self-possession really there is no infidelity nowadays he wrote in the week so great as that which prays and keeps the sabbath and rebuilds the churches the church is a sort of hospital for men's souls and as full of quackery as the hospital for their bodies those who are taken into it live like pensioners in their retreat or sailors snug harbor where you may see a row of religious cripples sitting outside in sunny weather let not the apprehension that he may one day have to occupy a ward therein discourage the cheerful labors of the able-souled man it may be imagined that the spirit of defiant pantheism as horace greeley called it which breathes through all thoreau's utterances on the subject of religion and especially through the magnificent passage in the chapter on Sunday in the week, must have caused him, and still causes him, to be mistrusted and misunderstood in so-called religious circles. It has been truly remarked of him that he creates as much consternation among the saints as the sinners. Yet his unsparing candor and incisiveness of speech— ought not to blind his readers to the fact that it was the very depth and sincerity of his religious sentiment that caused him to set all forms and dogmas at defiance what then is the practical outcome of thoreau's ethical teaching in the first place he is an earnest and unwearied advocate of self-culture and self-respect and insists again and again on the need of preserving our higher and nobler instincts from the contamination of what is base trivial and worldly the body must be exercised into purity and vigor and carefully safeguarded against sloth vice and disease and in like manner from an intellectual point of view the mind must be kept secure from the harmful and distracting influences of conventionality and gossip the extreme delicacy of thoreau's nature a delicacy which was sensitive almost to fastidiousness may be seen in the sharp and perhaps too arbitrary contrast which he sometimes draws between the spiritual and the animal instincts, and especially in the tone of his remarks on the subject of love. The intercourse of the sexes, he says, I have dreamed is incredibly beautiful, too fair to be remembered. I have had thoughts about it, but they are among the most fleeting and irrecoverable in my experience." it is strange that men will talk of miracles revelation inspiration and the like as things passed while love remains some have asked if the stock of men could not be improved if they could not be bred as cattle 
let love be purified and all the rest will follow a pure love is thus indeed the panacea for all the ills of the world the eager self-seeking restlessness of modern society with its ignorance or disregard of the claims of thoughtful repose was summed up for thoreau in the word business nothing in his opinion not even crime is so much opposed to the poetry of life as business it is a negation of life itself yet as has already been said the leisure which he advocated as essential to the well-being of every man was very different from idleness indeed there have been few writers who both in word and deed have exhibited the value of time more powerfully than thoreau if he rejected business in its commercial and money-making aspect he none the less recognized that hard work is as important a discipline for the mind and morals as exercise is for the body and that those who fail to support themselves by their own labor are doing a wrong both to themselves and others for the same reason he urges on students and men of sedentary habits the advisability of taking a share in the simple common labors of everyday life asserting that the student who secures his coveted leisure and retirement by systematically shirking any labor necessary to man obtains but an ignoble and unprofitable leisure defrauding himself of the experience which alone can make leisure fruitful we see then that thoreau's first demand is for leisure and elbow-room that each individual mind instead of being crushed and warped in the struggle of life may have space to develop its own distinctive qualities and follow the bent of its own natural temperament never has there lived a more determined and unalterable individualist everything according to his maxims must be examined nothing must be taken on trust he was as emerson calls him a protestant à l'outrance and unhesitatingly rejected many customs which are supposed to have the sanction of experience and tradition he declared that after living some thirty years on this planet he had yet to hear a word of valuable advice from his elders when a young man of his acquaintance professed a desire to adopt his mode of life his answer was that he would have each one find out and pursue his own way and not that of his father or his neighbor it must not be supposed however that he wholly ignored the possibility of wise cooperation on the contrary he expressly states in walden when advocating the adoption of a better system of village education that to act collectively is according to the spirit of our institutions and in the account of his canadian tour 
when he describes the machine-like regularity with which the troops at Montreal went through their drill in the Champ de Mars, he exclaims that a true cooperation and harmony might be possible if men could combine thus earnestly and patiently and harmoniously to some really worthy end but this seems to have been nothing more than a distant anticipation. Under present conditions, he considered that the best hope of society lay in the progress and gradual perfecting of the individual man by his own personal effort. At a time when Fourier's doctrines had obtained great hold in New England, and when various schemes of cooperative associations by which society was to be entirely reorganized and regenerated, were being eagerly discussed. It was inevitable that so shrewd and practical a thinker as Thoreau should, in spite of his idealism, fall back more and more on what he considered the solid basis of individual independence. This view is stated very clearly in his criticism of a volume entitled The Paradise Within the Reach of All Men, in which the magical results of cooperation had been depicted in glowing colors. Alas, this is the crying sin of the age, this want of faith in the prevalence of a man. Nothing can be effected but by one man. He who wants help wants everything. True, this is the condition of our weakness, but it can never be the means of our recovery. We must first succeed alone that we may enjoy our success together. We trust that the social movements which we witness indicate an aspiration not to be thus cheaply satisfied. In this matter of reforming the world, we have little faith in corporations. Not thus was it first formed. Footnote. Democratic Review, November 1843. End footnote. Closely connected with this strong individualism are Thoreau's anarchist doctrines. He regards all established government as, at best, a necessary evil, which we must tolerate as we can during the present transitional phase of human society, in the belief that the ultimate condition of mankind will be, like the primitive, one of individual liberty. Politics he set aside as unreal, incredible, and insignificant. Blessed are the young, was his new version of the Beatitudes, for they do not read the President's message. For the same reasons, he expressed a strong dislike of the general tone of the American press, which he considered, with a few exceptions, to be venal and time-serving. In at least two of his essays, The Plea for Captain John Brown and Slavery in Massachusetts, this feeling finds an outlet in a fierce philippic against the hireling journals which did not scruple to use their utmost influence in the service of the slaveholding party. 
Yet here, too, as elsewhere, there is a danger of exaggerating the extent of Thoreau's lack of sympathy with contemporary modes of thought. It is true he preaches anarchism and civil disobedience, yet under a rough exterior he loved his country well, and in his peculiar way was perhaps as patriotic a citizen as any to be found in Massachusetts. He admits that the American government, though not an ideal one, is good enough when viewed from a lower-than-the-ideal standpoint, and more than once expresses his own desire to be a peaceable and law-abiding citizen. Moreover, in spite of his contempt for politics and politicians, he does not deny that countless reforms are called for, and shows that he is aware that the condition of the working classes is destined to be the paramount question of the age. But all his social doctrines point finally to this end, that the path must be left clear for the free development of individual character. There will never be a really free and enlightened state, he says, until the state comes to recognize the individual as a higher and independent power, from which all its own power and authority are derived, and treats him accordingly. I please myself with imagining a state at last which can afford to be just to all men, and to treat the individual with respect as a neighbor." which even would not think it inconsistent with its own repose, if a few were to live aloof from it, not meddling with it, nor embraced by it, who fulfilled all the duties of neighbors and fellow men. A state which bore this kind of fruit, and suffered it to drop off as fast as it ripened, would prepare the way for a still more perfect and glorious state, which also I have imagined, but not yet anywhere seen. Footnote. Resistance to Civil Government, Aesthetic Papers, Boston, 1849. End footnote. End chapter 9, part 1.